Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Our intern, Jacob McWinney. I was going to say McWinney. <laughs> <laughs> Larry would be very excited. I had to like take a second. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined by managing editor Andrew Keats, the bandy. Scott, how you doing, pal? Getting flashbacks oh, thank here. You. You're in. You're in your garage. Thank I'm in the studio. I guess th- that's not really flashbacky. It's, it's like pseudo flashbacky. It's kind of trauma inducing, though, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like it for me. Yeah. Uh, joined by fellow managing editor Andre Lopez Viafania. What's up, Lopez? What's up, Luis? So yes, I am coming at you again, like the uh, not so olden days of COVID. From the garage because I managed to within the, <laughs> the six months get COVID again. Mm-hmm. This is insane. I got a scratchy throat on Saturday. That's it. That's the entire experience I had. But the darn line on the test still showing up. This they say it's open. novel, a novel coronavirus. <laughs> My body's like this is ordinary. This is just this is not novel anymore. We're not. Uh, there's nothing novel about this. Coming up on the show this week, the numbers are in. San Diego's regional point in time count is complete, and now we have the latest, most accurate view of the homelessness crisis. On the second half of the show, we'll speak with Tamara Kohler. She's the CEO at the Regional Task Force on Homelessness, basically the person whose job it is to coordinate our response as a collective to what is happening, and hopefully she can help some shed some light on what we're going to do and can do about it. And if you may remember Awakened Church from COVID's worst days, well, our reporter Jacob McQuinney profiled the church this week with a great story about how intense rhetoric from that pulpit has gotten. He is going to join our Andrea Lopez Viafano for a discussion about his story on that. We've got lots in this podcast. Stay with us.
But first, our next live event is on the books. Thursday, June 9th, we are hosting a live podcast in Chula Vista. It's at Novo Brazil Brewing. We'll be there with some special guests and a live audience. We're really excited for it. Get the details and tickets at vosd.org slash events. We'll see you there. The COVID-19 pandemic changed our world in a ton of ways. It changed how we work, how we live, how we travel, how we socialize. And Awakened Church, which has five campuses across San Diego and thousands of congregants, has gone through something of a transformation. In a story published this week, our intern Jacob McWinney unveils these changes and how big of an impact it has on public health and the conservative Christian movement in the region and the state. So we all sort of watched this transformation or birth or whatever it was into what it is now as churches leaders were refusing to comply with the shutdown. Uh, what did you learn about that transformation, Jacob? Um, well, a lot, maybe too much. Um, it was uh, <laughs> quite a process to report this piece out because it's it, it was one that I that I actually came into the internship wanting to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been kind of following Awakened Church for, for many months. Um, like a lot of people, a little more casually than this this article kind of is um it it was very clear that that over the course of the pandemic they had um you know engaged in a series of skirmishes with county officials about lockdowns and about shutting down which they at a certain point just flat out refused to do mm-hmm. um one of the most interesting things for me was that um it it seemed as if those skirmishes ended up instead of kind of tamping it down, it ended up pushing it further into its corner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, with heat brought upon it by people like Nathan Fletcher, who who called it out by name, which was mm-hmm. is actually a pretty rare thing. They weren't um, doing that before, No, right? they like, weren't. There was like outbreaks in locations, but they weren't saying where. Yeah, they were communicating to those locations that there mm-hmm. were outbreaks, but um, according to Fletcher, because of Awaken refusing to shut down even after some outbreaks had occurred, it, it became necessary to make that information more public. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from there, it seems like they, you know, had this foil in mm-hmm. a county official and um, uh, ended up pushing back even for, even harder. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing was as their kind of social media content, they're a very, as an evangelical church, they're very social media savvy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they work very hard to try and attract a young audience and to produce content that is very slick and... Uh, you know, has the um, the booming, catchy pop rock and sort of electro-y kind of stuff. Um, and as their as their content often veered into into the political, um, mm-hmm. it it actually gained a lot more traction. And I think that was kind of um, a a pattern throughout this burgeoning anti-vax, anti-lockdown movement that's that's really made a name for itself in San Diego. Right. Um, you know, it it there was this sort of feedback loop that was happening. Um, and, and while it's very clear that, that some folks were, if not repelled, but, um, but maybe turned off some of its, its congregants by mm-hmm. some of this rhetoric, um, a lot more were very, were very energized by it. Yeah. And so uh, you mentioned, you know, it's not just this, this rhetoric that you, the pastors have been sharing and that you, you laid out in your story, but there seems to be a growing effort to get people involved in politics. Uh, 
why is that and how is that kind of playing out in in the church i mean you were there in person Mm -hmm. um you know i i I think it's important to understand awaken in in the larger context of evangelical churches Mm -hmm. um evangelical churches have long been um, very political, even back to the 1800s. Um, the 1960s and 70s saw sort of a, a revitalization of that with Jerry Falwell and, um, uh, you know, the moral majority movement. Um, but uh, um, even in the context of that very politically active history, Awakened Church has sort of brought it up a notch. Um, you know, they, they hosted um, rallies trying to get out the vote against Gavin Newsom, um, they call out the, the lead pastor in particular, Jurgen Matesius. He um, calls out elected officials in his sermons. Um, and they've also hosted quite a few town halls with, with um, one gubernatorial candidate in particular, uh, this conservative guy named Anthony Tremino. And they've, they've you know, embraced him so much that they've even showed sort of commercials for his campaign before... Um, plays that they've Easter plays that they've had recently at their church, and I think the impetus behind that is is really because they they understand um, they they really understand that that a lot of the battle, while there is a cultural battle that they engage in, a lot of that battle um, for what they believe to be the soul of America is 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 happening in in the political realm, um, and you know a lot of this movement has sort of morphed between sometimes conspiratorial uh, impulses, but also very real ones, you mm-hmm. know, for, for business owners, small business owners in particular. Um, this was the COVID-19 pandemic was a pretty disastrous experience. Right. Um, there's also just the very clear effects on mental health and, and emotional well-being that, that isolation had. Um, and, and, those that sort of confusion as as some of the folks I spoke to um, pointed out really opens the door for moving further into this political realm you know when people are feeling confused or isolated um, it really does end up being an opportunity for them to to um, be radicalized in this way mm-hmm. and they become much more susceptible to people who 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 present themselves as having the answers, even if even if the answers they have aren't aren't really borne out by the facts, as you know, what one of the pastors that I spoke to uh, mm-hmm. pointed out. Yeah. So, um, you know, I find this story so interesting because I think it was a couple months ago. You and I were. Uh, I don't exactly remember how this conversation started, but I was telling you how when I was at the UT, one of my last assignments as a reporter there was to go cover one of these rallies, and I think it was um, a rally for you know, not mandating vaccines um, at the school district. And so I remember I was telling you about it, how, you know, I had covered a lot of rallies throughout, you know, the pandemic. um, But this one felt different because there was a lot of pastors there um, who were speaking a lot about, uh, you know, values and religion and God and, and the vaccines. And it just, it felt so strange to hear all of this because I'd been hearing about people just upset like they don't they don't want government to tell them what to do or what to put in their body but like in that moment it all kind of came together as a very like religious kind of moment where (laughs) to the point where they prayed at the end yeah like they came together in circle and there was this energy and I felt super uncomfortable but Mm -hmm. I remember telling you about it that like 
it was so it was so strange like to hear them praying and and saying God's mm-hmm. name and I was like what is going on here so I'm curious what was it like for you to go there I mean you went mm-hmm. to to uh, the church um, you were there when Tucker Carlson was there what <laughs> what was that energy like what was it like to be in there you know it's funny I, I was actually at that that rally as well yeah. back in September <laughs> at the at the um, the um, San Diego Unified School District's headquarters and and one of Awakens pastor Samuel Duth was there mm-hmm. um, I, I ended up speaking to him just a bit and I, I agree it was it was one of the sort of it was an eye-opening moment for me as well because it mm-hmm. it, it really in very stark terms laid out um, just how much religion had synthesized into the had been synthesized into this activist movement yeah um and you know as i was mentioning before um in times of great confusion like this religion is is a solace it really is and it's hard to overstate how much um pain and confusion and and just i mean this pandemic is a is a once in a generation experience. I mean, hopefully once in a generation experience. Um, Knock on wood. Yeah. yeah. And um, it was, uh, it, it, it does make a certain amount of sense that, that especially as people, as evangelical folks became more activated with Trump's presidency and viewing it as this way to kind of take back America for God and, and, and find mm-hmm. um, ways to, to express their religion through political means. Um, it makes sense. Um, but, but, Yes, it was that that rally in particular was a, an eye-opening uh, event, um, and the events that I that I've attended at the church, I, I've attended a couple at this point, as you as you mentioned, the Tucker Carlson one, which was just interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was this palpable energy there; you could feel it. People were were um, psyched. They were they were energized. They were activated. Um, and you know Tucker Carlson's a, a appearance was kind of the culmination of of um, a buildup of bringing a lot of of these kind of right wing, I guess luminaries, these 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 yeah. popular public figures from and 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 awaken over the months has had everybody from Dennis Prager to Candace Owens to Charlie Kirk multiple times to Simone Gold, this this doctor who who's who's become very outspoken in in the anti vaccine movement and has recently pleaded guilty to essentially being at the, the Capitol riot and, mm-hmm. and, and causing some causing some trouble there. You know, hearing hearing Carlson speak was was very interesting because because he is kind of the paragon of this right wing punditry at, at, at the moment. And he while he is very, um, uh, you know, he speaks in very vivid terms on his show. There was a very religious element to, to his appearance that that merged that religious and the spiritual. You know, he spoke about how before the pandemic, he kind of understood um, the world in terms of economic um, downturns and poll numbers and these very material political term, term these terminology. But but the pandemic had shown him. He said that there was this spiritual element to everything, mm-hmm. which outlines the ways in which it it was able to, you know, people have synthesized this religion and, the, and this politics. And so as they did at the, um, at the uh, 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 protest at the San Diego Unified School District headquarters, you know, they prayed over him at the end. Um, and uh, there were bursts of applause um, at, at many points, including, including notably when he uh, claimed to be unvaccinated, which I wrote about in a previous mm-hmm. piece that ended up 
getting picked up by a whole whole lot of of, of other media outlets. Um, you know, I also attended a town hall mm-hmm. uh, a, a week or so later with this um, conservative gubernatorial candidate, Anthony Tremino, that I met, that I mentioned, and um, that was also a really interesting experience. You know, they also prayed over him at the end of that event, um, and one of the things that he that he mentioned while I was there really kind of solidified my belief that this is some really interesting and, and worthwhile stuff to write about, which was that um, he talked about, you know, how he'd been up and down the state. And the one thing that he kept hearing was that San Diego is everybody, all these conservative activists up and down the state are looking at San Diego as the model for how to fight back against what they view as these oppressive and, and draconian um, lockdown policies in particular and vaccine mandates. Um, and so it's 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 really been a pretty educational experience. And with this piece, I was really hoping to try and tell a f- fuller story about Awaken than than had been told in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, when when we when we cover things in these sort of isolated outrage sort of ways that don't end up connecting the dots, we can we can really end up losing sight of really why these things matter and right. and the larger patterns that both animate these people and may give us a clue as to how they are going to end up in the future. Yeah. Well, you you did a great job, Jacob. And um, can any of our readers um, expect any more stories about Awaken? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm considering doing some more stuff on Awaken. I, 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 there's been a lot of feedback from folks, um, a lot of folks who um, have uh, responded saying that, you know, they, they, Awaken's influence on on friends and family members have have led them to become estranged from them um, mm-hmm. because of of their increased belief in some of the conspiracy theories that that Jurgen preaches, which are wow. quite a few <laughs> conspiracy theories. You know, yeah. everything from <laughs> from vaccine misinformation, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything from vaccine misinformation to to saying that elites like. Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and and George Soros are are planning to reduce the world's population to under one billion, which he, he's referenced for months now in his sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I am actually working on on a, f- a follow up piece of sorts that that sort of focuses a little bit less on Awaken and more on San Diego's right wing um, kind of conservative activist movement more broadly and the ways in which the pandemic have both energized it to a, to a, to a really extreme degree. Um, and it's, it's been a very interesting sort of, uh, thing to, to, to look into and to work on because we're at this, this really interesting point in, in San Diego politics where the Republican party and, and, and conservative, um, voters and, and officials, um, are, have less power than they, than they have perhaps ever before, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, the activists who are who are powering the movement right now are are um, maybe more activated and energized than they ever have before. Right. Um, so it really begs the question of of you know what happens when this group of extremely activated um, activists ends up backing candidates who will inevitably lose. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really excited to 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 finish this one up and and hopefully get it out there for folks to, to, to read and, and to respond to. Um, I've been really encouraged by the response because if nothing else, it's, it's definitely inspired quite a lot of conversation <laughs> and a lot of back and forth. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been, 
it was a big, big heavy lift, a lot of research, but, but I, 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 I'm really proud of what ended up, you know, being produced. Yeah, you should be. Thank uh, you. Well, thanks for your work, Jacob. And I look forward to reading that other piece. And I'm sure our listeners and readers uh, will as well. Uh, you can read Jacob's full story on our site, voiceofsandiego.org. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side, our interview with the head of the Regional Task Force on Homelessness, Tamara Kohler. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. All right, and we are joined in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio, remotely in this case, but joined all the same by Tamara Kohler, the task force CEO, the CEO of the San Diego homelessness task force um and this is a big day for the task force because this is the day that they have released the results of their annual point in time count this is the federally mandated annual census for the uh to that tries to get a a grasp of the size of the homeless population here in san diego county and elsewhere in the country that is, comes with it, uh, all sorts of important understanding about where we stand, uh, but also comes with some caveats about what that census is not. And we're going to dig into all of that. Tamara, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So why don't we just start with the big picture, what you found, the headline numbers, what was it that this year's uh, census of San Diego County's homeless population uh, told us uh, about this crisis that we're dealing with? Well, thank you. I think the point in time count is something that sometimes is misunderstood, so I'm just going to level set a little bit of what it is. It is a required activity. Uh, it is required every other year in San Diego. We have felt it's important to do it every year. Uh, because of a pandemic in the last couple of years, we didn't do it last year. So it was really important to conduct this count uh, this year, it gives us a snapshot. It's not the big picture numbers. It's on one given night uh, and it gives us a lot of trend data. So it gives us a minimum number of individuals that we find unsheltered. So that means on your street, in cars, any place you really wouldn't spend the night uh, that's not called housing or shelter. And this year, 
you know, we have the, a different environment that we had prior to the pandemic. So although we'll make some comparisons to 2020, and do you think it's really important not to make strong comparisons because we all know how different our lives are today after a pandemic. But the high level numbers, uh, we found no less than 8,427 individuals experiencing homelessness, both unsheltered and sheltered, are unsheltered, 4,106. We're not going to catch every person in a car, a canyon, and out-of-the-way spaces, uh, but that is people we talked to and we saw. And then our sheltered, 4,321 individuals. That includes emergency shelters and transitional housing. So top-line numbers, it's about a 10% increase from what we saw in 2020, um, but it is just a snapshot. And it was a very cold morning, if you remember, and we had had rain. And sometimes that can impact the number of people that if they can't get out of the weather, protect their belongings, pull the resources and get like a cheap motel room. Uh, it's a pretty big uh, effort to get out and engage all of those individuals. Yeah, maybe walk us through some of the logistics there because, uh, you know, the folks who maybe don't pay uh, especially close attention to this, might um, might not quite understand. How, how is it that the that homeless people, because of an especially cold night or an especially rainy night, um, would be able to, for some some finite period, um, get themselves off the streets? What, you know, um, what, what it, you know, tell us essentially basically the, the nature of homelessness, that, that these the people who are unsheltered might not be a static group that is in the same predictable place day after day? You know, that's a really good question. And it's part of the reason we conduct the count at the end of the month. Many of our homeless population uh, have disabling conditions, have a fixed income, have a little bit of income, and they will, when they can, uh, you know, seek shelter in motel rooms, they'll double up uh, in, you know, different conditions. They may have someone that would let them stay on a couch on an extremely cold uh, night. Overall, our unsheltered population ebbs and flows because, you know, they'll they'll pull different resources if they can. They may get a, you know, a motel room that's cheaper for a week, and then we have something going on to where the rates are higher. So it's it's not a static group. And it is not a static condition, but overall being unsheltered means I can't afford housing of my own or sheltering even in a motel room. And, and we just don't have the shelter capacity. So there's, there's an important understanding that people experiencing homelessness, it's not that they many don't have jobs or even income, but they don't have enough yeah. to just meet a, a monthly obligation of housing or something they can afford. But sometimes they can piece it together. And a hotel room for a week is, you know, a, an important opportunity for them. And, you know, that that does, you know, that's just part of how they survive. And so and so the, so the long and the short of it is on this cold February day, uh, we would basically expect that number of people who are um, essentially locatable by the the uh, group of volunteers that fans out across the county. It would be harder to find those people uh, on a cold February morning than it would uh, some other time. That's true. On a, a traditional morning, um, you know, that they're, they're going to. So I, it's important to remember that the point in time count is a snapshot. You don't get to control the environment. It is though a very intentionally orchestrated effort. We have 1,400 volunteers. A large portion of those uh, are 
outreach workers who know where to find people and where to engage. And they really lead the efforts. We have 36 sites across the region where people meet at four in the morning and go out. So, and, and they're given uh, a map of areas to either walk and in some of our more remote and rural that they drive those. Uh, but we're preparing in advance of where people are at, although people move around and, and that's always a big challenge. And that's why we do it early in the morning. We do it with a high level of volunteers and we do it with a, a very intentional approach to map it and with outreach saying, hey, here's where we traditionally see people. Now, this was an area, you know, last week where we had a concentration of individuals. So it's not random, I think, as people think it is. It's it's much more intentional. But, you know, people move and, and weather impacts that, other things impact it. And it is a minimum count. It is, we know, no less than uh, 8,427 individuals. Okay. Or without homes. Okay, and so so uh, those caveats on the table. We we the the that eight thousand some people help us wrap our heads around that. That's a a ten percent increase from twenty twenty. I don't think anybody in twenty twenty would have felt like we uh, really had a great deal of headway in in this problem. So getting ten percent worse from a situation that was already pretty bad um, strikes me as 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 bad news. Obviously. Um, what other ways could we look at that 10% increase? And could you put it in context for us around, uh, say, other regions in California, LA, San Francisco? How you know how are other places doing? Is San Diego uh, an anomaly here, or are we um, essentially on trend? You know, it is a. Um, some communities have seen more of a decrease. Orange, Orange County, I believe, was a 17%. Ventura was a 25% increase. San Francisco had a decrease in the city, but an increase in the surrounding communities uh, where they are able to shelter more individuals. I think the underlying um, issue of homelessness is not diminishing in the state of California. So there are in areas where they saw some decrease, but we also uh, in the entire state used other resources coming out of a pandemic. And I'll just highlight, we were in a surge of COVID in January, and that's why we moved the count from January to February. And that is true across the state. And so some of the sheltering options we saw in our own county also changed throughout the state. I think this count's going to come with an asterisk, no matter how you look at it. Um, and a comparison even to 2020 is going to have an asterisk to it. But I think you highlighted something that I just want to um, lift up a little bit. Even though the numbers are were lower in 2020, that is a one-night snapshot. Uh, we do the larger numbers of people experiencing homelessness. We collect data every day, every month. You know, it's over 36,000 individuals touch our system uh, in the last year. And it is not getting better across the state of California. I mean, people know that, but it also is our housing conditions are not getting better. They are not becoming more affordable. We don't have a lot of available units. Uh, and so we compound the need of housing to end homelessness by a lack of resources. And, you know, we because of that, we have more people who need shelter and different types of emergency shelter to meet their needs. California has a housing crisis. We have a homeless crisis. Those two are, are you know, not, inter, you know, not separate issues. 
And we're not going to get better at this until we are better at understanding how to prevent and keep people in their housing and get a little further upstream and get more housing for people who are on very minimal fixed incomes as a minimum threshold. You mentioned the 21,000 people who touched the system. We got a comment about this in our story today. People saying, well, you know, a lot of those people probably got 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 help multiple times and we're, they're being double counted. This I want to make clear is 21,000 distinct individuals. The, the system is, is, is taking pains there to recognize that it's different people. And if people are going through the system multiple times, maybe they get a shelter on four separate occasions or they get in a shelter once and then also they go into some sort of program once that they get counted one time. So this is um, a, 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 a broader count that goes throughout the whole year that's saying 21,000 different individuals have at one time been homeless or interacted with homeless services in San Diego County last year. Is that right? Andy, I appreciate you saying that. That's very true. That's why the point in time count has been such an important one because it's individuals. You sort of freeze frame And this isn't how many times they touch the system or experiencing homelessness. This is where they are today. Mm -hmm. That bigger number, uh, 36,000, about 14,000 of those are in housing, uh, you know, that we've been able to solve their homelessness, but are still funding their housing. But the 21,000 are unique individuals. That can be someone who has been served, you know, a dozen times uh, two times or 40 times, but it is a distinct individual. It's a count of people, not services. So you're absolutely right. So, yeah, I mean, so just to, to put a fine point on that, the, the, we're talking 8,000 some people that we are able to count in this point in time number were nearly three times that size of people who at one time or another in San Diego did not have a home. That's you know I I I I don't want people to over overlook how much bigger in magnitude that is um, about the number of people who are living in some sort of despair in this county. You're absolutely right, and it's why we have for years lifted this up. Not only is this a minimum count, we're not going to find everybody and catch everybody, but we shouldn't be you know, getting off the hook of being like, you know, looking at it as it's only 8,400 individuals. It's not. It's a bigger uh, challenge. It's a bigger problem. It's a bigger group of individuals. And it also means we need to plan for those bigger numbers, right? So the 21,000 individuals who touch those emergency services, literally homeless, whether on shelter or unsheltered, three times what the point in time count is, tells us a couple things, right? Experiencing homelessness in San Diego is a bigger problem than we even can, you know, can wrap our head around in a point in time count. Secondly, not all of those individuals are still experiencing homelessness or our count would show 21,000. So people move through our system. Homelessness is addressed in a number of ways every single day. But every single day, more people are coming into the system as well. So we have a lot of people newly homeless. We have a lot of people who have been able with a little assistance uh, or long-term housing assistance, we've been able to solve their homeless crisis. It doesn't solve the housing crisis that feeds into it and limits our capacity and ability to really solve homelessness quickly. It's a bigger issue, and I really appreciate you highlighting the bigger numbers And again, those are unique individuals, everyone from a very aging population to, you know, young, young families who are falling into homelessness are counted in those numbers. And 
you know, to add another point of comparison, you've you've kept these numbers, uh, you know, going back over time. And just in 2017, and I hasten to add, I don't think anybody felt like homelessness was in a good place in San Diego in 2017. But even in 2017, when I think there was a broad understanding that we were already in a crisis environment, at that time, there were fewer than 10,000 people coming through the system in a given year. We have more than doubled the issue since 2017. Since, you know, think about think about your own life in 2017. I still have a toddler who was born in 2017. This is the a short lifespan of a very young person. In that amount of time, we have twice as many people who come through the homelessness system in a given year in San Diego. And so based on that, I have to ask Tamara, what good reason for optimism is there about this situation being handled in a meaningful way or being solved in a meaningful way if the situation is twice as bad as it was four years ago, five years ago? You know, I think that is a a fair and honest question. Why should we be optimistic uh, when it feels like everything we're doing is not, we're not seeing the fruits of our labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing more people experiencing homelessness, but I would also say our rent uh, prices in 2017 profoundly different than they are today, exponentially more, mm-hmm. but also that there are some areas where people were not fully engaged or fully invested. State of California being one of those, uh, not putting money into addressing homelessness and, and the housing crisis. They're beginning to double down on that. They put funding into homeless services. I'm optimistic uh, because of a couple things that I see coming together that are the only way we're going to stem some of the tide. And I think part of that is really intentionally saying we have to have X amount of housing. Mm -hmm. We are looking to convert things. And one place that I've seen a lot of truly measurable success is how we have been working on veteran homelessness and really leaning in and tackling that. The federal government has doubled down on the amount of funding and support. The Veterans Administration is really stepping into it again in a more intentional way. And we're starting to see, even in a pandemic, and on our point in time and in our bigger data set, the veteran numbers going down. And I think if we are able to replicate what works, um, that and do that with our subpopulations, apply that to families, apply that to youth, apply that to a senior population, uh, we have a fighting chance of bringing these numbers down. I think one of the biggest challenges is there are solutions to homelessness. We know that's housing, but we don't have it at the depth and breadth and capacity that we need. And years of policy and underfunding has really hampered an ability for people to afford housing on their own. And we're going to have to make big, bold investments to catch up. And I'm seeing, you know, some really genuinely honest conversations about that need. It's not about someone's failings. It's a failing of multiple systems that are creating homelessness. This is, you know, a poverty issue and a lack of the supports that people need issue. And ultimately, it's a housing stock issue. So I'm optimistic because I know that we have proven there are ways to do it. Veterans are a really good example. Um, but it just, you know, and, until we fully embrace what the investments are going to be and the solutions are that we know are ahead of us and just get the work done, we're going to have homelessness in our landscape uh, until we until we're committed to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess that's sort of my my question here is um, the ho- housing costs in California are 
absolutely exorbitant and and still trending up right now. Um, I guess maybe if you squint, you could find some signs of softening if you wanted, but it's you know it's not not anything that anybody's going to celebrate right now. Um, and the conditions that created that are were decades in the making. And the solutions um, maybe don't have to take decades, but certainly would play out over a series of years at the very least. Um, and providing the sort of permanent supportive housing, or uh, just or simply, you know, workforce subsidized housing um, that might you know reasonably help um, people who can't afford the market rate conditions is going to take many millions of dollars and many many years. And that's in a situation where the state and city of San Diego are spending more right now on homelessness every year than they ever have. And so I guess my question is, is our present condition something that people in San Diego have to just live with for the foreseeable future for the next three, five years? Is that, I mean, is that the the cold, hard medicine that we have to accept that the, the squalor and, and despair that people see on the streets is just something that we need to uh, live with and and how can that be an acceptable answer and and how can we be okay with that right yeah. I, I mean I think one of the heartbreaking things of our point in time count is the oldest individual we found what is an 87 year old black San Diegan living in his car like no that's not acceptable and we shouldn't have to wait three to five years or longer uh, for the investment to catch up to the need we can address some of those, uh, the squalor and the suffering on the streets by really re-examining what shelter looks like, what adequate safe shelter looks like. Uh, there are desires to invest a little bit in that, but does not mean we've taken our eye off of the importance of housing, but we need to understand that that is part of the solution uh, to protect life and property uh, for individuals who are experiencing homelessness. So, Andy, there's short-term better uh, practices. And I need, uh, you know, as San Diegans, we have to embrace that I need places for people to be safely sheltered. And I need places in our communities where we're willing to accept density, where we're willing to accept affordable housing, we're willing to convert and rehab, that we're willing to understand that people experiencing homelessness are really without housing. We know people personally who struggle with the same challenges. I think that people are concerned about mental health issues, behavioral health issues, uh, substance use, who are housed. The majority of people with those are housed. But really, we need to reduce the fees to get things set up. And we need to embrace in every community, you know, siding. Um, the the solutions. Everybody wants the solution, but not in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We gotta we gotta double down. And and honestly, if you don't want to see the you know despair conditions of homelessness, then you should want to see the solutions of shelters that can adequately safely shelter and connect people and give them the basic hygiene things and and nutritional things they need. And then, you know, we got to site housing and we got to think about housing not only in a density and uh, accessibility and affordability, but we are also thinking about more, you know, how do we ha do it with more roommates? How do we do more, you know, shared housing conditions? So we're also rethinking through the things that we've been doing one head in one unit at a time is not getting us there either. So that means really going back over and gleaning over all of our programs for better outcomes and efficiencies with the money and the way we do the work currently.
Yeah. Uh, so you, you, you mentioned at the top of that answer some uh, re-examining what, what shelter is and what safe shelter that you know can be an acceptable way to address the situation of, say, an 87-year-old uh, person living in their own car. Um, it's just you know hard to fathom. Think of anybody should think of that as their their grandfather. And um, what did you mean by that? What are what are these alternative scenarios that, um, while maybe can't bring an end to this crisis, can bring some short term relief? What 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 did you have in mind when you were discussing that? Well, Andy, I think we have looked. At, we've done sheltering the same way for you now twenty years. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a general congregate model in a lot of ways, but that doesn't work for. Uh, everyone. Also, you know, the the sobriety, the you can't use or be on anything and be in shelter. We've got to be really, we've got to understand that what you need is areas where people can safely be sheltered, even if they are coming down off of something. So really embracing harm reduction for some of these populations, having shelters that can have a higher level of clinical support. This is not disparaging any of the shelters that we currently have or those operators, but we need to really look at the landscape and hear from people with lived experience, especially those in sheltered, of what it is that would help them in a sheltering situation. And that may be, you know, more safe parking lots, that may be, you know, uh, converting some other properties into shelters, non-congregate shelters, you know, safe villages or something that's being looked at, safe camping. I think we need to be open to all options and opportunities and listen to people who are actually out there on the street and what they would embrace. I think too much we hear that people are resistant to things when in reality, if we took into account their, you know, what are their limitations or concerns of our current system, we would have more things that met their needs which would reduce the suffering we see on the street. It would reduce the the um, challenges of people not, you know, feeling necessarily safe or, or I can't go up and down the stairs or I can't store my stuff or I can't bring my pet or I can't be with my partner. We need to evolve to what the needs are uh, currently and, and we need to have the support of communities to site these locations. If you don't want people on your streets, Allow us to cite these so that they can come in and be connected uh, so we can work collectively to end their suffering and to find housing that's affordable. Yeah, you know, with some of these the citing problems um, about something like a, a safe campsite, something along those lines, I, um, I, I guess I don't really understand that objection, not, not from the, uh, the neighbor's perspective. I understand what they're saying. They, they are often quite honest about what they're saying. They don't want it in their backyard. Um, I don't understand it as a as a reason not to pursue that as an alternative um, to congregate shelters because congregate shelters run up against those same objections and we're able to overcome those. When uh, congregate shelter was proposed in Barrio Logan, community residents uh, argued that they had done plenty more than their fair share and they didn't want it there. Uh, and the mayor's office, uh, to their credit or detriment to whatever your perspective is, they just ignored those complaints and they they put the shelter there anyway. Uh, why wouldn't that be an option for a safe camping shelter? You know, if 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 we can if we can by sheer force of will find the places to put an oversized tent to allow a few hundred people to um, to escape the elements, uh, what makes it so much harder to to do that in a, a, a surface parking lot where people are going to put up their own tents? You know, I don't know that it is. I think sometimes the surface parking lots are not um, their private property, and 
I think part of it is getting the infrastructure sited there, being able to have uh, bathrooms, being able to have showers. And, and I think that it is just general pushback. I think elected officials, you know, want the support of their communities to tackle issues. And when we try and cite some things, there's pushback. I think we need to, if we're supportive of addressing homelessness, then we need to raise our voice and not be passive about it. I think too often we hear from people who have very strong opinions and I value those. And I think we need to hear them. But I also think to your point, why are we having a problem with this? And you know, if it's feeling like you don't have enough support from your constituents, let's figure out, you know, let's, let's make sure we're hearing from them as well. I had a conversation with somebody the other day um, about, you know, that they were sort of uh, just remarking to me about just how, how striking downtown San Diego is right now, how uh, vast the encampments are, how permanent they look, um, how dangerous they seem, uh, not just for people outside who don't, don't like the looks of them, but people who live there as well. And we have no shortage of examples of people who have been living in encampments that experienced um, horrible tragedy as a result of that situation. And um, I was trying my best to be an informed member of the press who could have a conversation to make him feel a little bit better. And what he asked me was a, a, a question that basically stumped me, which was, explain briefly what we are doing. And I, I couldn't really answer that question. I, I, it seems to me that we're doing everything and nothing. We have lots of programs. Some of them have very uh, promising metrics for success. Uh, we have other programs that some people don't like, and there's an argument about moving away from them. But overall, I, I have a hard time articulating right now a coherent narrative about what our approach is to turn back the tide of you know these 21,000 people accessing homeless services every year that used to be 10,000. Um, can you help me out there? What's what's the the brief answer about what the city of San Diego or the San Diego region's approach is to making this situation something that we look back on and discuss, but but don't have to live with anymore? Well, I think there are things we should be looking towards. We're not going to get there with the limited investments that were being made. You're seeing greater investments. You're seeing uh, greater investments from the county, not only provide more mental health, behavioral health, but also citing some of these things on their property. You also a commitment to spur citing um, shelter, any shelter option with a, a $10 million uh, commitment investment that should go before the County Board of Supervisors. I'm seeing more elected officials, not just in the city, but in all of the cities, leaning into where can we put in our community shelter options. Uh, we've been increasing shelter in the city of San Diego uh, and trying to do it more intentionally towards populations, which we haven't done in the past. I think all of those things are uh, will begin to add up if we continue to really lean into that. We need more things. You know, St. Teresa of Calcutta, uh, Father Joe Village's uh, largest uh, housing uh, for homeless that we've ever seen, 400 units, is something that you know, we want to replicate is more of that those housing options. Uh, and truly, I think for the unsheltered, having the conversations in those areas, and there is 
efforts to try and find locations to cite some of these other options, which were not conversations we were having two years ago. Andy, I'll be really frank. Mm. They, you know, every option was on the table and I'm now uh, in conversations and hearing where we're, we're trying to do that. The investments uh, that have come and will continue to come from the state you know, we need to, we need another project home key. We were able to do hotels. I know there was some controversy around that, but that was a significant amount of addition to the housing stock that we didn't have to wait five years um, to develop it. So there, uh, I think to your question, like what is working? There are a lot of things that are working, but they kind of nibble around the edges because, as you said, the numbers continue to increase. Mm -hmm. And so we need to double down on some of these. And I am hearing, uh, you know, commitments of budget and conversation, uh, you know, looking to there's a new uh, additional shelter coming on for women. We've added more shelter options for families. Uh, We also need to know that it's gotten harder for our homeless service providers uh, to address the needs of people experiencing homelessness pre-pandemic, 50% of the people that were in shelter had some, had an income, some level of income. In the pandemic, only a third of those in shelter have a level of income. And so we have less to work with each individual. And so it looks like some of the things are, are not working. The truth is it's just even harder to those same uh, programs have to work even harder to get the work done. And so, you know, all of our employments have changed. All of our housing has become more expensive. And all of that makes our system even harder to achieve outcomes that get us in front of this work. So uh, another insight I had in these numbers was uh, comparing 2020 to 2022 on a sub-regional level, uh, North County Coastal, um, went from the the fourth largest of the subregion, uh, that's you know North County Coastal. It's the area along the coast in North County. Uh, went from the fourth largest of the five subregions in the county to the second largest. Um, it it jumped over the course of those two years. East County and North County inland. Um, during that same time, similarly, uh, Oceanside surpassed Escondido as the the largest homeless population in North County. Um, how confident are you that those trends are real as opposed to uh, noise uh, associated with a sort of uh, volatile data set, as we've described in different ways, um, that's only going to get more volatile as you uh, slice, the, slice the numbers into smaller and smaller um, buckets? So uh, uh, North County Coastal surging um, while East County and North County Inland sort of trend downward. Do you believe that that's accurately describing what's happening on the streets? I don't think it's really helpful if we line up the cities, you know, in this way and say, hey, you know, they, they look worse than, than another one on this one night. The number of people experiencing homelessness in both those communities um, are a concern. And each of those communities are really leaning in to try and address it. And I'm really, I think it's one of those bright spots that I'm seeing in the, in the last year or two, each community really saying, okay, let's just, how do we figure out for us? Or how do we, us three communities come together and, and lean into it? And, and that's how we'll, we'll also be able to whittle these numbers down. So I, you know, it's, the count is, it's a minimum count. 
um, you know, just like any other count or any other statistics, they can, they can, you know, you can have a margin in, of error one way or the other. But both communities really showed up in, in getting people out that morning to do the count. So I think the numbers have to stand on their own, that that's what it looked like on the morning of the count. And then kind of step back a little bit and really look at the number of individuals that they're seeing through their outreach teams, you know, monthly and annually, which is what they're really using to to plan for and address, you know, the sheltering options that they're looking for and the housing options. I really have to say both are really leaning into how do we get housing that that people can afford in their communities as well. Tamara Kohler. Thank you so much for talking to us and uh, congratulations on getting this count out. You know, I know, I know that's not really uh, <laughs> something to, to be celebrated, but I imagine it's a tremendous amount of work and uh, it's the, the, the basis of a lot of the work you do. So thank you very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity and as always, uh, really appreciate the, the time. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in my garage again, at least partly. Oh, this hurts. Get your tickets for our live podcast now. See the details and sign up at VOSD.org slash events. Link is in the show notes. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-in-chief. Andrew Keats is our managing editor. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is also our managing editor. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.